This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Today's episode is different. It's me trying to articulate some things that I've been thinking about for a while that have been influenced by a bunch of podcast guests and by a visit this past week by Josh Lajani, who's an ultra runner who used to weigh over 400 pounds, whom I was introduced to by Garth Davis, and then whose story I learned on Rich Roll's podcast. He's been on twice. And what I'm struggling with a little bit is something that a lot of podcast guests over the past few months have been chipping away at, and I hadn't really realized it un- until the trigger of spending a week with Josh, and we're working together on a book and a different podcast project. And we went running together a couple of times, and it was not easy for me. And Josh is kind of a hard-ass coach, and he wasn't letting me get away with anything. And that all helped me see that my pragmatic approach to helping people change may be less pragmatic than I think, and that giving people easy steps and making it as simple as possible and focusing on what's in it for me in terms of better health and delicious food maybe to some extent backfiring. And I haven't changed completely, but this conversation really was very helpful for me to kind of figure out some other ways to think about it. And it's also was very helpful for me to think about how I'm going to go about my own process of self-betterment in the next few months and years. So I think Mia added a lot. She was mostly quiet, just sort of sitting there, but she did uh, offer some questions and comments in strategic moments that helped me tremendously. So I hope this episode helps you as well. We talk about a lot of, of books and videos and other podcasts, and you can find all that in the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 156. So without further ado, here's me and Mia. So one of the really nice things about the podcast is that I get to talk to all these different people and get so many different perspectives. And during each of the interviews, like my mind is racing with things to talk about and ask them. But one of the things that I haven't had a chance to do lately is kind of sit back and process like the different guests I've had and almost think about them. Like, what would it be like if they were in conversation with each other? And so my mind has been buzzing lately with, with, with these thoughts, with uh, really concepts of what's the best way to get people to, to adopt change. And I'm thinking about that a lot for not just for clients of mine or for the general public or people who read books I write or listen to podcasts, but for myself as well. Because there's, there's ways in which I, I find myself being very, very pragmatic. Like people will do this, people won't do that. And really what I'm saying is I will do this or I won't do that. Like some things, like, I, you know, I, I've always felt like health is the best motivator because it's a great motivator for me to, uh, and, and I kind of put like, you know, animal rights and environment even on the back burner because those aren't things that for me are going to motivate me in the moment to make one particular choice or another. And I think that's not, you know, that's not true of everybody, but it's true of a lot of people, and especially people who aren't in the movement, um, who aren't in the plant-based movement, who aren't in the vegan movement, animal rights slash animal welfare slash, you know, fighting climate change sort of group that telling people, um, that they need to change for moral reasons is a huge turnoff. 
And so I, I, I want to start there with the interview that I did a few months ago with uh, Vlad Chituk, um, who's a you know behavioral psychologist and researcher, who was talking with me about like what a turnoff it is when vegans or anybody else comes up to people and says, "Well, you're you're wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're being." Um, immoral, your actions are immoral, come over and be like me. And, and what, a, uh, what a lousy entree into the market that kind of view is. So, you know, then I think in terms of, well, as a marketer, I want to talk to people about what's in it for them and what's in it for people to go plant-based and start exercising and changing their lifestyles is obviously better health. People will lose weight. They can get off their meds. They can extend their lifespan. They will feel better. All all these things. And you know, as a pragmatist and as a marketer, I'm thinking, well, that's that's the way in. And then I uh, I talk to people on the podcast like Jamie Gannon and Bob Cafaro who faced life threatening illnesses and things that you know literally would have killed most people. And if they had died or, you know, if they had just gone through Western medic- medical care, no one could have blamed them. No one would have said, oh, well, they didn't do all they could. But they went way above and beyond. And one thing I noticed in both of their stories is that they went above and beyond health. It, it, it's at a certain point, this wasn't about just getting back to baseline healthy for them, it, that something flipped. And it was that they, they both became kind of warriors in a way of like, what is my, what is the, the limits of my human potential? And it's a very different question than what's the minimum I need to do to be as healthy as I want to be, or what's the minimum I need to do to look like I want to look or feel like I want to feel. And so that's kind of what I've been struggling with is this, this idea that as a pragmatist, I think we should, we should talk to people about, well, this is the, this is the 80, 20, this is the least you need to do in order to be healthy. And we know that these things that you do will also help animals, will also help the environment, will also, um, contribute to economic and social justice around the world. And so it's, it's been kind of a minimalist approach and I'm starting to rethink that, not necessarily as the way in, as the way to, to, to initially tell people, um, you know, why they should consider changing their, their lifestyles, but quickly soon thereafter to, to raise the bar and, and to move it to something else. Do you have any thoughts? I was just filling up fuel and there was a person standing outside the gas station, um, who was smoking a cigarette. And I thought to myself, what would make me want to smoke a cigarette? And um, imagining her life and imagining she's probably eating a lot of the, the pre-prepared, packaged, preservative-filled food that you can buy on the shelf of that, super, of that gas station. Um, she's probably not living her dreams. She's probably not exactly thrilled with her life um for her it's about day to day and for her day to day is smoking to help her fulfilled you know too and so um i feel like the basis is not if the basis is not there an emotional health a a, a 
desire to live a fulfilled life, to make the best of this one precious life, um, we're probably not going to really care about what we put into that body. And we don't see it as this one precious life. We see it as one foot in front of the other, working at the gas station. Um, and for relief of pressure, I'm going to go and light up a cigarette. Thank you so much for saying that. Cause that, that really helps me remember what I wanted to talk about and why. And I think that's, that's exactly right. And kind of, you know, what the, the image that comes to mind there is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, this triangle that he, that this uh, psychologist Maslow said that like the bottom level is just your basic survival, right? Food and safety and then emotional health and then mental and spiritual health. And finally we get, we get to like self-actualization. And I think there's a way in which it's true and there's a way in which it's upside down. And I got this a little bit from, remember Eric who came to, to visit with, uh, with Mike Ellis, who's you know, the, the, this guy who, was, um, who grew up homeless as a teenager and was befriended by someone who helped him go to college and turn his life around. And his idea is that you don't get people off the streets and out of poverty by just giving them money, by solving the, the bottom, by just giving them a place to live, by solving the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. You solve the problem by helping them self-actualize, by helping them see that there is a greater purpose to their life. And at that point, the other stuff kind of falls into place. Because when you, if you just take people who are poor and homeless and you give them money and a home and you haven't changed anything else, they're still in that cycle. And I think this, this woman that you saw smoking a cigarette, like what, what does she have to believe about herself and her life and her possibilities to value her own body so, so little? And, you know, the way you describe it, it's like, you know, we, we self-medicate, right? With the cigarettes, we self-medicate with processed foods, we self-medicate with salty, fatty, rich animal foods. And so that brings up this, this other couple of folks that I've interviewed recently. One is uh, my friend Glenn, my, my, my martial arts teacher and, uh, you know, stress-proofing uh, expert who, you know, believe me, the martial arts we do is uh, there's pain involved, right? Like I'll come home and I'll be, you know, really, really happy. And you say, well, what did you do? I said, well, we, you know, we, I got punched a lot. And there's, I've learned to, to find some sort of, of joy in experiencing physical pain, in enduring things, in being in locks, in, uh, in getting choked and in, in getting out of it. And then, you know, he turned me on to another guest, uh, Mark Schoen, who wrote this book, Your Survival Instinct is Killing You. And saying that the, you know, the enemy of, of our lives is comfort. Because in, in our society, we never have to be cold or hot. We can always be in a, in a temperature-controlled space. We don't have to have mosquitoes around us. That we, can, we can kind of engineer our lives to be just totally comfortable. This is what happens in that state is we're so used to comfort that our fear of discomfort kind of hijacks us and takes over. So even as we're at 68 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit, some part of our brain is what happens if it drops to 65? What happens if I go out and it's 105? And, and so we're so scared of leaving that comfort zone because we never have to, 
that we exaggerate how bad it would be, and we're in a constant state of, of stress over that. So, you know, for myself, I've been aware for a while, but I'm really reconnecting strongly to this idea of how much do I do in my life that is kind of to, to avoid, like how much do I self-medicate with not, with not cigarettes and, you know, Slim Jims or... or Netflix. Yeah, Netflix. Or, uh, we have, we have a, a, like a three-week subscription to HBO uh, Now um, that our, our son downloaded before he, he went off on his, his trip. And uh, last night around 11, I decided I was going to watch the first episode of Game of Thrones. I didn't tell you this. But uh, at midnight, I realized, like, okay, my life is too full for Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I went jogging at 7.30 instead of 6.30 this morning. But you know, that, that, that's, that that's kind of a huge part of getting people who, who know that they should be eating better, who know they should be exercising, they shouldn't be smoking, you know, and yet they do it anyway. I think a huge part is this incredible need to, to self-medicate, to make ourselves just feel okay. Emotional pacifiers. Yeah. And, and what I, you know, what I'm getting from, from a lot of these guests is that the way to change is, is not to say, okay, well, I, w- I want to be healthy. Like that, you know, that's a good start. But almost as soon as you make that declaration, I want to be healthy, then all the reasons why not come up. Right? And, this is, and this is the stuff I work with people on in coaching. So all of a sudden they say, I don't know what to cook. I'm, I'm, you know, you've, you've told me how to change my diet. I don't know how to do it. And that's true. And it's, it's, a, it's an issue. But you know, in, in, in marketing, we, we, um, we had a, an expression, you know, gun to your head marketing. where So you're the, you're the business owner. And you have to put together an email or a promotion or something. And the, the it's horrible metaphor, but, but you know, it's, it's in my head, is that imagine someone had a gun to your head and you said, you've got to make this sale or else. Like you would, you would go all out to make that sale. Or, or even worse, they'd say, you know, we're going to take your family and we're going to put guns to their heads if you don't write this email as powerfully as possible to make that sale. And... You know, there's a lot of things that I would do with a gun to my head or with a gun to my family's head that I would think are impossible. And like, so it's at some level, all these um, logistical issues, I don't know what to cook. I don't know where to buy the food. It's too expensive. I don't have time. They're all real. And at some level, they're all excuses because we don't think we have a gun to our heads. So the other thought that I had while I was looking at this person standing there smoking, um, and I'm not going to describe her looks because I think people can imagine what her, her, what her body looks like, um, was that if, if she was given a diagnosis and said, listen, um, you have a fatal disease, you have probably a month to live, or six months to live, what would her attitude be? So that gun to your head. Um, and I think Stephen Jenkinson talks a lot about that. Like um, People don't see fully have that value of their life. They don't fully appreciate what they have 
until they get that diagnosis. Well, I don't know. I can imagine someone thinking, okay, well, that's how it is. Um, I better, you know, like I see a lot of people, like I see very few people who are truly in love with their lives, who are, who are truly willing to, to live fully. You know, I, rem- I remember when, uh, when Peter Bregman started writing and one of his first pieces that he, he published widely was for CNN. And it was, I think it was in 2008, right during this crash and the economy was tanking. And he, he wrote, now is the great time to start a company. It's like, right, you're, you're out of work. Networking is, you know, everyone's going to networking meetings because the unemployment rate is so high. Everyone's going on monster.com or job boards or LinkedIn looking for work. This, you know, let's look back to the last depression, to the 1930s. Look at these companies that were started by individuals who basically said, I'm not going to let the circumstances around me define my limitations or define what I can do. And he wrote this article, and it was a good article. And I remember, you know, this on CNN.com, there's a lot, a lot of traffic to it. And, and like hundreds of people were commenting, and almost all of them were negative, and almost all of them were were angrily, insultingly negative. I remember some somebody wrote that they wanted to, you know, throw him off the the tower at Harvard Business School. And like people were really angry when he said that you don't have to let this recession keep you down. That you can you can take action, that you have some agency. And and the basic argument people were making was that's easy for you to say because you know you're whatever you're privileged you're white you're you're um, ivy league league educated you write for cnn you write for harvard business review you live in new york city you're a consultant you've got money you don't understand what it's like for the rest of us we don't have those luxuries we and 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 i think the real anger was that people had had their dreams dashed already multiple times in their lives. So when you're a little kid, you know, you think, oh, I can do anything. I can be a fireman. I could be a baseball player. I can be a ballerina. I could own my own company, whatever, whatever your, your heart gig is. I, I think a lot of kids at least grow up with this idea that they can do it. And then, you know, you got to go to work when you're a teenager because the times are hard and you didn't get into the school you wanted to get into. And You've got a family, you've got to support, and you've got to make compromises and choices. And so this idea, this tantalizing idea that you could live your dream life feels like a cruel joke. And so when somebody then reminds you, yeah, you could, like, maybe you can't, but somebody could. Like the, 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 all the reasons you're giving are kind of excuses. That gets people very, very angry, which, which brings me to... Um, you know, to working with, with Josh. So for folks uh, who don't know, I've, um, I met uh, Josh uh, Lajani through um, Garth Davis and, uh, and Rich Roll. And Josh had this story, and I first saw it as a visual. Garth posted on his Facebook page um, a before and after picture of Josh. And the before picture is, uh, was, a wedding, was a wedding photo, Josh's wedding. And he weighs somewhere north of 400 pounds. He estimates maybe 410, 420. And the after picture looks like a completely 
different person. It's someone who's, who's uh, a little bit under 200 pounds, I, I suspect, running a race. And I, I believe it's a, it's a marathon or some, some race of that sort of length, maybe a, an ultra or a you know, 50K or something like that. And then the story that went along with it was it was kind of excuse busting. Like every excuse you could possibly give for why, if that was you, why you wouldn't be able to do it, was in that story and overcome. You know, he's 420 pounds. He grew up in uh, in the bayou of Louisiana, where the whole family ate that way. It wasn't like he was some sort of anomaly. Like, you know, his grandpa was in the 350s to 360s, his brother, his dad, his mom, his sister, everyone was... You, you'd consider, um, you know, dangerously obese. And that was the whole culture and the way they ate. And he was a hunter. So he used to go out hunting, you know, and drive into the the swamp or wherever they were hunting and set up. Um, they loved their, you know, po'boys and jambalaya and etouffee and, and crawdad boils. And he, at, at a certain point, became... Uh, very, very fond of cocaine and started selling to, uh, to make money to, to pay for his own habit. And it was, you know, and they would get drunk all the time. Like that, that was the culture. That's a bunch of excuses to, to not be able to, to get better. He dropped out of college. Uh, he'd been a, a football player. He was told to bulk up for football and he was, you know, a big kid and, and encouraged to be a big kid. And there's all sorts of stories he tells about the, you know, the trauma and dysfunction and violence in his own family and stuff he was dealing, you know, dealing with. Plus he, um, he, he owns two companies that keep him busy, like from dawn till dusk. He, uh, he owns a, um, a trailer park that he's the, the manager of. So anything goes wrong in the trailer park, the water hookups, uh, flooding, debris, whatever, garbage pickup, you know, he's on call 24-7. And when he, when he was here and we were working, he was getting calls all the time and trying and dealing with them and, uh, you know, try, trying to, uh, to solve other people's problems for him. And then he has another company that does um, sewers. He says, like, one of the things he has to do all the time is he has to go to the place where the, uh, you know, where all the lines, the sewer lines meet and the, uh, the pump is broken. And he has to go in there. And it's, you know, you can only imagine what it smells like. It has to, you know, fish out a condom or a tampon or something that somebody threw in that's just, you know, blocked up this pump and it's no longer functioning properly. And so, like, those are really good excuses. Like, you have to get up at 6 in the morning to, get to go to work. Like, who, who could ask you to go start exercising? In spite of that, he joined a gym, started working out, started re- changing his diet, and, you know, these are, he's going on like 3.30 runs, going to the gym at 3.30, 4 in the morning. And, you know, when we were, when we were running together, you know, I'm probably 20 pounds heavier than, than I want to be. And I haven't been running that much. And obviously running with this guy who does ultra races, like I'm not going to be as fast as him. He's also six foot four. So I can't tell you how many excuses were going through my own head, like why I was suffering and why he should slow down for me as we're going up that hill. And one of the excuses that popped into my head and almost made it out my lips was, hey, man, you don't understand what it's like to jiggle with this 20 extra pounds around my, your belly. Like, I almost said it to him. 
probably the reason I didn't say it to him was like, I couldn't make words. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, so then when we got back, uh, I told him that, uh, you know, we laughed about it because obviously he's, he's dropped 200 pounds and his first 10 K he was about 300 pounds. We went running two days later and, and what does he do? He shows up in a weighted vest wearing 20 extra pounds so that I would not even have that excuse, which was a total bullshit excuse in the first place. But my brain was an excuse machine because, you know, it's like, oh, well, I, I, my, my, I had done physical therapy. Is this good for me to be doing it? You know, I have a game on Wednesday. I don't want to overdo it. And, uh, you know, I'm 50 years old. He's only 38. And so like even, even his story, I was looking for excuses big enough to drive my behavior through. And it was so interesting to see them because he, you know, he was very sweet and kind, but no, no mercy with me. He was like, you know, man, I, I pushed you. I knew you could do it. Like the second run, we weren't next to each other. He was like 20 yards ahead and just kept looking back to make sure that I hadn't like fallen down or crawled into a ditch or something. He said, like, I, I knew that if we were running together, you'd want me to slow down. But if you couldn't ask me, like you would just, you would just turn it on. And so he, he saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And it's, it's the other, you know, funny thing is, that, you know, he, he now helps people all over the world because people have seen his story. They're very inspired by it and they write to him and he writes back and they're like, dude, I'm where you were, you know, five years ago, four years ago. I'm, I'm way overweight. I can't get my energy up. I can't seem to do this. I don't know what to do. Should What should I buy? Should I buy an Apple watch? Should I buy an instant pot? All this stuff. He's like, dude, just do. You don't need more information. Just, just do. And then he sees the excuses come up. And there's two really cool excuses that people give. One is you don't know what it's like because you don't have kids. Right. And it's absolutely true. Like once, once we had kids, like our lives got turned upside down. It was completely different. All, you know, I call it the, the lost decades where I was, we were just tired all the time and irritable. And the truth is, if we had decided that exercise and eating right was a priority, we would have done it. Even so, like even as hard as it was, like I was able to use parenthood as an excuse. But basically what you're saying is that if you had a buddy who could hold you accountable, it is like a major leg up in the, in the race to get better, to stay better. Yeah, and, and I have to, you know, the first step is to be willing to, to accept that buddy's influence, right? On that, on that run, like I gave myself up to his coaching. Like whatever he said to do, I was going to do because he had done something I hadn't done. Like I had to admit in a certain way that I wasn't, I wasn't captaining my ship the way I wanted to be captained, right? Here I am. I'm, I'm, I write books on health. I go speak. You know, I don't, I wear my shirt not tucked in because I, I'm vain about my little gut. And yet how many years has it been? And I haven't really done anything about it. And so, I, okay. So yeah. So I, you know, I, I feel like my, my virtue here was that when the opportunity showed up, I grabbed it. I didn't go like, well, I know all this stuff. I'm a PhD and he's a coon ass. He, that's apparently a not so nice word about uh, people from the bayou, but he uses it all the time and it 
and says, if you, if you use it with love, that's okay. But, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that I'm this highly educated, well-read person who knows all the studies, and yet I'm still not doing it. So at that point, I was able to, to say, you know what? He's my professor. He has mastered something that I have not mastered. So I'm willing to accept him as, a, as an accountability buddy, as a workout buddy. And unfortunately, he had to drive back to Louisiana. So now, now I'm doing it like, you know, chasing his ghost up the hill. But, you know, the, the other excuse that, that he gets from people, and this, this is so delicious. I understand this so well, is they go, yeah, but you hit bottom. I haven't hit bottom. Right? Like you were 410 pounds, you were basically addicted to drugs and alcohol, you were miserable, you were partying, you were hanging out with the wrong crowd, you, your life was nothing. Like that's the point at which I could get motivated. Right? And we have this mythology, like, right? you know, when you, you go to AA or something, you've got to hit bottom before you make a change. And I remember this so well when I was starting out in the internet marketing world. And it was such a seductive world because all these people would be on stage, you know, trying to sell you their $2,500 program. And they would basically say, I'm, I'm lazy and stupid and I can make money with this system. So, so can you. And they would show us pictures of here. I was two years ago living out of my sister-in-law's basement, eating Ritz crackers and peanut butter from Aldi, because that's all I could afford. And then I discovered this system and I got rich. And it was like a trope that everybody had to have this rags to riches story. And then they show you the, the, uh, the slides of their Disney vacations and their hot spouse and their fancy cars. And so then, so then everyone's salivary glands, everyone's greed glands are going off and they go, okay, now I want that. And there were so many times where I was like, oh, if only I could hit bottom. Like, I have a house. I had a good upbringing. Like I wasn't, I've never, I've never wanted for anything. And, and, you know, most people would, would call that like white privilege or, you know, upper middle class white privilege. And for me, in my mind, at my lowest points, I was like, oh, that's such a disadvantage to be advantaged. <laughs> right. So when people say to him, yeah, but, but you wanted it more like you had, you had, you'd hit bottom. I haven't hit bottom yet. Therefore, I can't do it. Like you can see that as the, as the giant excuse it is. So one, one thing that, that Josh and I talked a lot about is we, I think of it now as vitamin P for uh, pain. Like I go through so much of my life just trying to avoid pain and discomfort, like to the point when everyone was doing that ALS ice bucket challenge, there was no way I was doing that. I don't like cold. And even the thought of it was just, was just horrible. You know, doing doing martial arts, I'm I'm getting I'm getting better at it. But still, like I've for years and years, I've been playing in this frisbee league. And if I were a little faster, I'd be a lot better. And if I had a little more stamina, I'd be a lot better. Like the points that I play, I'd be more useful on defense. I'd be more dangerous on offense. I could, you know, I, I would I would just be better. And I love playing. And I don't want to stop just because I've, you know, turned 50. I want to play for another 10, 15, 20 years if possible. But I haven't been doing the things that I need to do to, to get there. And the reason, and I'll go for jogs. Like I'll do, you know, I've been doing like four and a half miles, three, four mornings a week, but they're definitely jogs. Like I'll work, I'll walk the first 10 minutes, then I'll lightly jog. And when I hit the hill, 
I'll walk again. Like I, it's, it's like I have a discomfort threshold, and as soon as it hits, I'll stop. And so the things I need to do to get better for playing ultimate are speed work, like running 100 yards or 100 meters and then catching my breath and doing it again or running quarters or running miles as fast as I can and then resting, some sort of high-intensity work. And I can't tell you the last time I've done any high-intensity work because it doesn't feel good. And I, have, I really have trouble pushing myself to pass that threshold. And I think that's, that's the trade-off that I find so interesting. And I think that you maybe saw with this woman who was um, you know, smoking and, and eating all sorts of junk food is that we, we don't get to choose how much pain and discomfort we get in our lives. Like, it's going to come. The question is, do we proactively go for it and, and give it meaning? Or does it just come in the form of aches and pains and, and misery and emotional and mental suffering? Like, when, when it hits us as a victim, then we interpret it very differently. We interpret it as poor me, this is unfair, life sucks. But when we choose it, when we say, I know, I'm, I'm going to run this, uh, this seven miles this morning and I'm going to do it faster than feels good. And then we're going up that last hill. We're, like, it hurts. It's just you know, out of breath. My, my, my toes feel numb in my shoes. My, my lower back on my right is hurting because my form isn't perfect. You know, I'm gasping for breath. The sweat is streaming down my face into my eyes, but I've chosen it. So I give it a different meaning. I say, this, this pain is making me better. And I don't get to say that when I haven't chosen the pain, when it's been, when it's been visited upon me, either, either karmically because of my behavior or just randomly. Like, you know, people, people get hurt and suffer all the time, not for things that they've done or deserve, but it just, it just comes to us. And so that's really, that's really the kind of the crux of what I'm exploring right now is this relationship with vitamin P. If we don't, if we don't choose our pain and make it mean something, and I'm, I'm realizing I'm saying this to, to someone who has done natural childbirth twice, which is, you know, a pain that I can't even imagine. But like, you know, you're, you're much less worried about pain, I think, than I have been. And I'm imagining the childbirth pain is very meaningful. It's not like, well, this is unnecessary or, or useless or, or a punishment. Well, I mean, I think that if we can stay present, and that's where that emotional health comes in again, where we can stay present for our pain and, you know, decide, listen, I'm going to make good decisions today. And but every time discomfort sets in, you immediately revert to old patterns and bad decisions. If we can drop into it and feel what it is, why I have the desire to light up this cigarette right now, and instead of just feel it, um, I'm bored right now. I'm there's sadness in me, and be willing to sit and feel that sadness fully, and be willing to acknowledge it. Uh, maybe we're going to need, we, we don't need to light that cigarette up. And I think there's a, there's a part of also realizing that pain is part of life. So every time I go work with my bees, I expect, you know, sometimes I want to get stung, but I also look at it as like, what? Well, but bee poison is, you know, bee venom is 
painful, but it's it's also a medicine. And so I like to look at it, but where did I get stung? That's clearly where I needed that, where I needed healing. Um, I cut myself every so often. Um, I don't work with gloves in the garden, but I also know that my body is strong enough. It will heal. There's ways that I, my body's not going to always have these cuts and always have these bruises. So having faith that my body can heal itself is, um, as you said, pain is not a bad thing. But at the same time, God forbid, I don't want to be at the point where, you know, a, 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 a car plowed into my body. That is a very different pain. I don't want to deal with, you know, I've lost a limb. Um, so it's not like I'm saying that if, if that, God forbid, happens, that I'm going to be totally okay with it. I'm not saying that all pain is necessarily great. I'm just saying that the spirit can survive anything. I mean, you've seen so many people who go on with uh, amputated limbs and, and live full and fulfilled lives, and other people don't. Their spirits are not um, strong. And so if your spirit is strong, I think your body can handle a lot of pain. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very you know, useful and humane point, that we don't want to fetishize pain and suffering and like, you know, like, oh, I can't wait for my car accident, right? Because we, we, also, we also want to understand that these, these bodies are gifts and they're precious. And however, whatever life gives us, like, you know, this is our, our, our one wild and precious life. But at the same time, like there's, a, you know, this expression, you know, YOLO, you only live once. So that expression is used to encourage people to take risks, right? And then there's this very, very subversive, funny, Lonely Island song um, called YOLO, which turns it on its head. Basically, it says, you know, you only live once. So like basically lock yourself in your room and wear, <laughs> you know, wear padding and don't go out and don't do anything because you only live once. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's hilarious. Like, you know, brilliant that, you know, the skill in life is basically temperance. And I think about that tarot card of the, you know, so the, the barefoot woman sort of pouring from one cup to another, that you that, that I think of that as our life force, that, that temperance isn't some prudish thing like, oh, never have a drink or don't eat chocolate or, you know, but temperance is we, we don't know how much of the water we've got. We don't know how much life force we've been given, but whatever it is, let's use it as wisely as possible. Let's use our energy, our, our, our lifespan, our vigor, our passion in a way that is in keeping with our, with our values and our desires. And, and so sometimes that means staying up all night dancing. And, and sometimes it means going to bed at six, right? That, that this idea of we're not, we're not putting ourselves in harm's way for, for its own sake, but we're, we're doing it strategically so that we don't shrink ourselves. Right? And this idea of, of, you know, feeling what you said earlier about feeling it in the moment, like I want this cigarette for, for me, it's not the cigarette, it's the chocolate. It's whatever, what's whatever's left in the house, right? As I've, as I've cleaned up more and more, <laughs> my standards of, of junk food are getting, you know, it's getting tougher and tougher. Like for a long time, you know, it was cliff bars. Right, because they got a picture of like a guy climbing a mountain on it, and somewhere in my brain, I convinced myself that they were healthy. Like I, I know they're not. I, I can read the words soy protein isolate as well as anybody else, but I'm like, well, these are okay. 
And so I can have them in the house and I can have once in a while. And then I realized, you know, I'm actually eating like eight a day. <laughs> I don't think the bulk of my calories are coming from Cliff Bars, which is bad for two reasons. One is like you like them occasionally as an energy pick-me-up when you come in from the garden or from something and you're just really low blood sugar. And you can you can buy like a dozen of them and they'll last for weeks. Like you'll eat them, but not when, not when I'm, you know, rooting around in the closet, then they're gone. Like, is there any Cliff Bars left? Yeah. No. Did you, you know, let all that I want to lie, like come up, oh, well, yeah, you know, Elon had them or, or they weren't there. Like I start, like I know when I'm, when I'm self-soothing with food because I feel shame and I want to hide the fact. I want to, you know, I feel very secretive about it. Like I wouldn't sit there in front of you and eat all eight of them in one day. I do that like in my room and then I take the wrapper and I put it like in my pocket so I can get rid I don't, you know, I can't find it in the garbage can later. Like then, then it took another podcast guest, Glenn Livingston, uh, who wrote Never Binge Again to help me realize that I had to say no to Cliff Bars. Like this just wasn't food for me anymore. And now they're in the house, right? Now they, now, now they can just sit there in that bag and I just, I just have recharacterized them as not food, which is not to say that they're not food for you or anybody else, but they're not food for me. What that's done to a certain extent is now when I want to reach for something, I don't have, I, I've, I've put a little distance between myself and the object of my desire, which means that I have a chance to make a choice. I have an opportunity to say, oh, I feel this desire. I feel this longing for some piece of crap that's not going to serve me. Do I go for it? And sometimes I will. Sometimes I still will. But now at least I have, the, I have a, a, a millisecond of space in which to say, what's going on here? Am I... Am I taking care of myself or am I being self-indulgent? All right. Because in the moment, it's very hard for me to know what I'm doing. But if I think about it, like if I do self-care, then I don't mind if you watch me do self-care. Like if I make myself an avocado sandwich with, with broccoli sprouts and a tomato slice and, um, you know, Ezekiel bread, and I sit down and I eat it slowly and consciously, and I'm not on my iPad and my phone at the same time. Like, I'm, I'm cool with, with being public about that. But if it's self-indulgence, then I want to, like, eat over the sink. <laughs> right? I just want to cram it in. I want to, and, you know, even if it's the same thing, it's, it's not for nourishment. It's to, it's to numb out some emotion that I'm not willing to feel at that moment. And I think that, you know, in, in the people that I'm coaching, like that is the crux of it, is that in order to change, like our habits are there, just like that lady who's smoking, our habits are there because we need them, because we're trying to medicate something that we don't want to feel. We're, 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 we're using everything as an analgesic. The key thing, for people to change that behavior is to be willing to embrace discomfort and to some extent embrace, embrace pain. And I think that's why it's so much easier to transform yourself when you're, when you say something like my goal is to live an amazing life. 
And to live an amazing life, I have to make sacrifices. Because in this culture, we're not told we have to make sacrifices. We're told, yeah, just go along on the conveyor belt. You know, go to elementary school, middle school, high school, college, graduate school or, or, or job. Like there's, there's conveyor belts for people who are comfortable, you know, who, are, who have reached the, uh, you know, the echelons of privilege. We don't have to, we don't feel like we have to sacrifice anything because our dreams were, were destroyed so long ago or driven underground so long ago. We feel like, you know, I don't even have to think about that. That's why Peter's article in CNN was so hurtful for people because it brought, it, it excavated those thoughts. But if we say, I want my life to be amazing, then we have to make sacrifices, especially in this culture where if you go along, if you eat the way everybody eats, if you exercise the way everybody exercises, you will end up sick, fat, and nearly dead, to, to quote uh, Joe Cross's movie title. That's, that's the way of things. There's only a very, very tiny percentage of people who have the, the genetic ability to withstand the onslaught that this society puts on our health and our spirit. And, and so therefore, if, you know, if you say, okay, I want to be healthy. So now I'm going to eat for my health or, or I want to be skinny or lean. So I'm going to eat for that. Like that's what I'm starting to see. Are they, those are very weak motivations. It's because we don't, it's not enough when we then are, miserable and we want to medicate with a cliff bar or a cigarette or a box of donuts. It's, it's not enough because we're not, we're not willing to feel the pain. All we want is the pleasure, right? So if I'm, if I'm uncomfortable and I'm on meds and I feel bad and I say, well, what I want is a hundred percent pleasure and 0% pain. And then the things that I have to do to get there, they're not painful. Like eating, Eating salad is not like, you know, cutting myself with, with razor blades, but it's not as pleasurable as, as eating the blooming onion. <laughs> yeah, I remember that blooming onion. There was one. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, like so, so, all I'm, so the goal is 100% pleasure. I'm, I just want to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And the path to that is I have to reduce the amount of pleasure I get in the moment. So I, ha I have to say no to this seduction in order to get what I want later. And if my goal is just pain avoidance, if my goal is just pure pleasure, then I have, I have no tools to resist the pepperoni pizza and the pint of Ben and Jerry's and, and whatever the other things are that trigger me. And I have no ability to run up the hill, even though I feel like shit. Because my goal is pleasure. Why am I running towards pain? I'm confused. I, I, I should be running towards pleasure. Let me turn around and go down the hill. Or better yet, let me find a spot on the side of the road and just lay down and let the sun warm me. Because that feels better. But if I say, I want to live this amazing life. I want to push my limits. I want to push the limits of who I am, of what I'm capable of then we reconceptualize what we need to do as sacrifice. And then the sacrifice becomes ennobling and it becomes self-reinforcing. Like in, the, in that moment, as I was running and feeling terrible, I was also feeling fabulous. I was like, you know, in, in the same moment. So it wasn't, it wasn't like I was resisting 
pleasure now. I was undergoing pain now for pleasure in the future. Because that's 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 the that's the the math that doesn't work. If I suffer now, I will be happy later. That math doesn't work because we discount the future so badly. Right? So in this book, um, The Power of 50 Bits, Bob Neese writes about the mathematics of procrastination, which is let's say the thing you want in the future. Anything in the future is you cut it in half in terms of how much pleasure it will give you or how hard it will be to do. So if, so if you say like your New Year's resolution, so the end of December, you go, okay, I want to get in shape and that's worth like five to me. And working out is painful and it's, um, it's, it's three. It's the th- you know, so five is great. The benefit is greater than the pain because they're both in the future. But then the day comes and your benefit is still five because you're, you're going to work out, but you're not going to get fit right away. It'll take you months to get fit. But now you're going to have to work out today. Since it's now, the pain is doubled. It's six. So the pain is greater than the benefit. So you don't do it. You say, oh, I'll start tomorrow. So what happened to small changes every day, taking a little step towards it? Man, you hit you hit my uh, Achilles' heel of my theoretical framework here. That I still I still do believe in incremental change because you know we're not, I'm not like the last thing that Josh and I talked about was as you know because we're working on this this book and podcast project together was like I don't just want to be the with author like helping Josh tell his story like I want to be in the mix too. Partly, I, sub- I suspect for ego reasons, and partly because I want to live, a, you know, this wild life. And partly, you know, when I when I'm the with author, I I withhold a little bit of myself, and I think I'm bigger than that, and I have stuff to offer. So the last thing we talked about was, as we're working on the book, why don't I run a 50k? And so I'm I'm looking online at Ultra Sign Up, and there's one like I think the beginning of October 2016 that I'm looking at, and I'm starting to train for it. If I were to take a big step, like if it wasn't small steps and small changes, I would run a 50K tomorrow. I might be able to run a 50K tomorrow. Like if, you know, if my life depended on it or people were shooting at me, or if I was so prideful, like I've got to get through this, I got to prove this. I probably could do it. I, you know, I ran a, I ran 17 miles once and, you know, just because a bunch of people were running and I was in a neighborhood where I didn't know where I was and, you know came home, like my thighs were chafed and my nipples were bleeding. I didn't know that running could do that to a person, but I learned. But it would be a very stupid thing to do if I didn't have to do it to run 50K tomorrow. So what I can do, like this morning, I ran seven miles instead of 6.8. And considering that every morning that I've, you know, the 6.8 brings me back to our, our mailbox. And I ran an extra you know, two-tenths of a mile to bring it to seven. And that was a very small step, two-tenths of a mile, you know, tiny. It just, it took, it took another minute or two, but it means I broke through a threshold. So I think this, I think small changes can be wonderful, but they also have to be imbued with meaning. So if we think of them as small and insignificant, then I don't, I think they can, backfire and they can get us stuck and they can keep us small. But if I say, I just, I just broke another personal record today. I just did more than I yet did, could do yesterday. And I did more than I thought I could do. If there's things that I've wanted to do for a long time and they're just not high enough on my priority list, or I don't think I can do them, 
like I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and be able to do it. Like I need to change something. I need to change my resources. I need to change my skills. And so the tiny changes are the stepping stones. So you took a big step by saying, I'm going to do a 50K by setting that goal. But you're going to have to take little steps to get there. So it's not just a one answer. Yeah. And I think, and I, th- I think it's important to be strategic about the big goal. I think, you know, Peter Bregman talks about like, what's the thing you can, the biggest thing you can do that you, you're 80% sure you can do. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to say, well, I'm going to do Badlands, right? Badlands is like a 135 mile race in Death Valley in the summer. Like people's shoes melt. Like, I think that would have, I don't have any confidence that I could do that even in five years or 10 years or all this training. Like after I do the 50K, maybe I'll go, ah, Badlands is next. But you want to choose the biggest thing that you, you know, 80% sure that you can do. And then, you know, because I can see the way to do it. I could see how to train in four months for a 50K. And I can see that 50Ks aren't running the whole time. You can walk, they're on trails, you get to walk up the hill, there are, there are way stations where you get to get a drink. Like in my head, I think I can do it. And I know, and I know people who've done it. So I also have role models. I also have Josh, who was 420 pounds and he's now doing ultras. And I'm, I have a much bigger head start than him. Like I have advantages that he didn't have. You know, I have him. He didn't have him. He didn't have anyone telling him how to do it. He just, he was just like reading books and figuring it out on his own. Yeah, I think I think you know, there's definitely a, a huge place for strategy and tactics for for being smart about it. But I think you know, ultimately, the question is, what are we being smart about, and are are we doing it for, like, are we doing it to become fully realized humans? Are we are we tackling that top level of Maslow's hierarchy. And, you know, if the answer is no, you're not there, then I think that's the work. And you can start like exercising. Like there's people who can't imagine self-actualizing because they just feel so bad. Like, so then start doing the thing you can do, start exercising, start eating better. And then, but we're always looking for, like the, I think the goal of, of being human is to be our best selves. So, you know, like the Rich Roll podcast, the, I think the tagline is helping you unleash and unlock your most authentic self, right? And I feel like I've, I've been, this podcast, I feel like in my life I've lowered the bar below that because I wanted it to be an easier thing for people to do, but I'm coming around to the idea that the easier thing to do is sometimes harder because, because the, the motivation, the, you know, the intrinsic human motivation to be incredible, to, to be fully authentic, to be fully ourselves you know, without that, the temptations are, are too great and too ever-present. So I think, thank, thank you for, for being here. I know you have plenty to do. The garden needs all sorts of work. And I kind of begged you to come in here and, and let me talk at you. And, you know, you've, you've offered, I think, really, really useful uh, commentary. Very, very useful for me. And I hope useful for, for listeners, too. So, Mia, I want to honor and thank you because you, you are one of the the reasons that I try to be better every day. And um, I guess we'll, uh, we'll close up for there. If you have any last words or thoughts. I love you, honey. Take care. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And with that, (laughs) we bring uh, today's podcast episode to a close. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you have, or even if you haven't, drop me a line. Let me know either in the comments on the blog or drop me an email at hj at plantyourself.com and let me know what you think of this format. Um, if you like it, I could do more because honestly, it was quite helpful for me to think back on a bunch of guests and to put my own thoughts in order. But, you know, if you want to gently tell me, you know, stick to interviewing other people, I'll totally understand and I will honor that as well. But I'm really curious. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 155 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the weekly email newsletter, go to plantyourself.com and, and sign up for it. I include links to articles, my TV show, Triangle Be Well, and my grammar is way better in writing. Big thanks this week to podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Sharp, and Jen Vilkanovsky for your generous support of the podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media via email with anyone you think would enjoy it. You can just let people know. You can write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And every time I get a new review, I get more downloads. So it really does make a difference. So if you think this is a useful thing in the world and you want it to spread farther and wider and you haven't yet left a review, it's a pretty painless way to um, to do so. Just go into your iTunes, click on the podcasts, and then somewhere near the left, it'll say leave a review. If you need help with that, email me and I can put together some sort of tutorial or point you in the right direction. You can also become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing donation over at plantyourself.com. Um, again, a reminder, I have launched an extra affordable health coaching program, and it's still available to get in on the ground floor, bugs and all, and help me work them out. And if you're interested, hj at plantyourself.com. In garden news, wow, things are looking so much different now. The lettuce is all up. The, the kale is uh, making its farewells and going to be pulled up soon for the sweet potato slips, the Beauregards that we just ordered from the local farm and country store. And man, it's going to be sad to see that kale go, but sometimes you have to let go of something good in order to get something better or something whose time has come. So uh, that's my wish for all of us is that we know when to let go of the good so that the next thing can come and take its place. And as always, be well, my friends.